God's grace and peace to all of you this morning, dear people. So good to be gathered in God's house. I always look forward to these opportunities. It's a rich, warm time of fellowshipping together as brothers and sisters in Christ, gathered around the Word of God. What a, what a better place to be than here. No, there is no better place to be than around God's Word with God's people. The words of that song that we just sang stood out to me, especially some of them, because of what's been on my mind. The one verse ended by saying, And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess. Number one, the wonders of his glorious love. Number two, my unworthiness. The songwriter said, when I ponder the grace of God, it brings tears to my eyes. I've been studying the grace of God for the last few weeks, and I can assure you, I've cried many more times than once sitting at my desk as I've been overwhelmed with what grace means. God's grace for me. God's grace that has been extended to all mankind. It's enough to break a person if they allow it. And so this morning we want to look at glimpses of grace. Just glimpses. But glimpses of grace. And our text is in Titus chapter 2. I invite you there. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. Verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works." The grace of God. The Bible is really a photo album filled with pictures of God's grace. We find snapshots from Genesis through Revelation, snapshots of God's grace, expressions, examples of God's grace. And we have time to look at only a few snapshots this morning. But I trust that it will be enough to compel you to dig deeper in your personal studies. We will only scratch the surface. But I believe that what we have to look at this morning will be enough to whet our appetite for more. When we talk about grace... 
What are we talking about? What is grace? What does grace mean? In fact, grace is a a word that is used fairly frequently in our world today. Or a form of the word. When it comes to singing, when it comes to music, there are grace notes. We talk about people being either graceful or or not so graceful. Everyone enjoys grace. Everyone longs to be treated with grace. Grace beautifies. In fact, grace is attractive. And we have all experienced grace from God. But has that grace impacted us so that we have then become channels of grace? And I want you to ponder that this morning. Have you allowed God's grace to transform your life? Or has God's grace been poured out upon you in vain? Grace is, very simply put, unmerited love. Unmerited favor. In other words, you're not worthy of it. You shouldn't get it. You don't deserve it. But here's grace. Someone has put it this way that grace is God giving us everything that we don't deserve. Think about that in a spiritual context. Think about that in relation to what you have received in your spiritual life through Christ Jesus. Grace is God giving us everything that we don't deserve. Someone has said in relation to this passage here in Titus chapter 2 that grace is the power of God to do the will of God. Find that interesting? Enlightening? The power of God to do the will of God. Because we see here in our text that grace does teach us. Have you ever thought about grace as a teacher? We'll uncover that a bit more here in a few minutes. This morning, we simply want to look at three points. And that is that God's grace is a seeking grace. God's grace is a saving grace. And God's grace is a sanctifying grace. Seeking, saving, and sanctifying. Now, the passage here says that God's grace, verse 11, has appeared to all men. That word appear literally means in the Greek to shine upon. I find that fascinating. God's grace has shined upon all men. God's grace has become known to all men. When I think about that, how that it is shining upon all men, 
It tells me that there is a source. Grace is flowing from a source. Grace is flowing from God himself. There is this beam, as it were, this light beam of grace that is flowing out of God himself. It is a part of who he is. God is grace, and flowing from him is grace, unmerited love, something that we do not deserve. And so grace is reaching out from God the Father to all men. It's being extended to all men. The reason I'm saying some of that is because we often think that salvation is the result of our searching for God. I find myself thinking that. That salvation is a result of me seeking after God. That I came to the point where in my Christian... In, not in my Christian experience, but I came to the point in my experience that I realized that I was a sinner and I wasn't comfortable with that. And so what can I do to fill that void in my life? I'm seeking for something. I'm searching for something. This doesn't work. That doesn't work. What works? And then someone said that God works. Okay, now I found God. Dear people, God is first and foremost seeking for us. It's not so much about me seeking God as it is God seeking us. Grace is flowing out of God himself. Being extended to all mankind. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, we read that it is the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. Have you thought about that? God is working behind the scenes in the lives of mankind, in the lives of wicked men, in fact, in our lives. God is working behind the scenes to bring them to a knowledge of himself. And we think all along that it's, it's us. But behind every pricked conscience, behind every softened heart, behind every opened ear, is a loving Heavenly Father that is wooing us, that is preparing us to hear Him. I think of the story of Zacchaeus. We read about it in Luke chapter 19. But Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was coming to town. And Zacchaeus had some problems in life, did he not? But we read that Zacchaeus was short of stature. And he wanted to get a good look to see who Jesus really was. And so he climbed up in a tree. Children, what kind of a tree did he climb into? A sycamore tree, that's what the Bible says. Okay, he climbed up in a sycamore tree. He wanted to see Jesus. Zacchaeus thought that he was seeking for Jesus. 
Little did Zacchaeus know that Jesus was seeking him. And so you know the rest of the story, where as Jesus passed by, he looked up, he saw Zacchaeus, he said, come on down, I'd like to meet with you in your house. And you realize that that day salvation came to Zacchaeus and his household. And Jesus went on to say that the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. In fact, that is Jesus' mission as he came to this earth. To seek and to save the lost. That is truly the heartbeat of the loving Heavenly Father. Once again, I say, who was seeking who? Zacchaeus thought he was seeking Jesus. No, truly, Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And you know, we sing that song from time to time. It's in our Mennonite hymnal that, that spells this point out very clearly. We sing, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. It's put very well. Now, as we think about this phrase here in our text that says, The grace of God hath appeared to all men. And as we think about that, that word appeared literally means to shine upon. My mind went to John chapter 1. And I invite you back to John chapter 1. The grace of God has appeared to all men. You see, Jesus Christ came from God the Father He was God the Father in person, in human flesh. He was, in fact, the grace of God in human flesh. And as we think about this word, he hath appeared to all men, I think about the light, the light that has shined in the darkness. Look here at John chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 9. But in the verses right prior to it, we read about this man that was sent from God. His name was John the Baptist, and he came to be a witness of the true light. He was not that light, but he came to bear witness of the capital L, true light. Verse 9, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Does that not sound similar to the grace of God hath appeared to all men? He says, Jesus Christ is the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, 
To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of God. Man, I'm sorry, not of the, I'm sorry, nor of the will of man, but of God, born of God. Verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so Jesus Christ came as God the Father in the flesh from the glories of heaven. He came full of grace, full of truth, and He shined upon all men. He was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. I say that God's grace is a seeking grace. God came through Jesus Christ to seek and to save that which was lost. He shone upon all men. I find that so very uh, invigorating, so very enlightening as I think about this thing of grace. I also note that God's grace is a saving grace. God's grace is a saving grace. Our text back in Titus 2 says that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. It brings salvation. Once again, remember that this grace is unmerited love. This grace is something that you do not deserve. It's God giving us everything that we do not deserve. Takes us back to Romans chapter 5. Where we read that while we were yet without strength. But even more than that. While we were still sinners. But even more than that, while we were the enemies of God, Christ died for us. We were not able to save ourselves. We were sinners. We were enemies of God. And in that position of helplessness and sinfulness, actually being opposed to God, fighting against Him, Christ died for us. You know, of all the snapshots in the Bible, of all the snapshots of grace, let me say that the most breathtaking one that we find is the most horrific picture of Jesus hanging on the cross in unimaginable pain. And he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Are you serious? That's what he says. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The enemies of God. And then he cries, It is finished. Mission accomplished. 
I have come to do the will of the Father. I have carried through with His will. And at that very moment, the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom, signifying that there is now direct access into the very holiest. I now have the ability to stand before God the Father and to plead my case. There is now redemption. There is now forgiveness of sins. Sin is no longer just covered, as we talked about in our lesson, but through the blood of Christ, it's washed away. It's gone. I say it's one of the greatest snapshots of grace that we'll find in the Bible. Uh, Dear people, truly that is grace at its best. Grace at its finest. And the gospel songwriter put it so well when he said, Grace at its best is the cross of Calvary. Mercy's finest hour is when he died for you and me. Love's greatest story is proclaimed each time he saves the loss. Grace at its best is still the cross. Still the cross. Oh, there's a lot of beautiful pictures of grace throughout the Bible. And we can look at many. And truly, you've experienced grace in your life, but there's no greater picture than the cross of Calvary. You see, it is God's grace that saves us. It's certainly not His justice. I mean, justice is what we deserve. And yet, God's justice, think about it this way, God's justice declares that we are guilty. Okay? God's justice demands death. God's justice cries out, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That's God's justice. And that's what we deserve. Because we are sinners. But God's grace says to us, I love you. I love you regardless of what you've done. I love you. That's the grace of God that is extended to all men. God's grace says, and we find it in Revelation 3 verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. That's God's grace. If any man. You see, I want you to think about this. God's love is not determined by what he finds in us. You understand that? God's love for us is not determined by what he finds in us. In us. God loves us. Not because we are good. For sure not. Because the scripture says there is none righteous. There is no good person. There is none that truly seek after the Lord. We are all unprofitable and out of the way. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. God loves us not because we are good. But He loves us to make us good. 
He loves us because he longs for a relationship with us. Dear people, that is nothing more than the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Now, our hardcore Calvinist friends would tell us that God's grace is irresistible. In fact, that's point number four in their theology. Point number four, irresistible grace, they call it. They would say that the Holy Spirit is able to overcome all human resistance and to force His grace on your life, making it utterly effective and ultimately irresistible. But dear people, that is not consistent with the tenor of Scripture. That is not consistent, I say, with as you look at Scripture as a whole. The Bible says that salvation is a voluntary choice. The Bible says that we are saved saved by faith. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And, And once again, what does Revelation 3 verse 20 say? There we have the picture of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. What does it say next? Does he pick the lock and bust the door down and move in? (laughs) No, not at all. It says, if any man will hear my voice, number one, if any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. I say grace is not irresistible. But salvation is a voluntary choice. We believe by faith. It's a choice that I make. I open the door of my heart. I let Jesus Christ in. And while God does offer or extend grace to every man and woman, He doesn't force it on anyone. And I truly believe that God's grace is only truly effective through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is when it is truly effective in our lives. It is being extended. It is being offered. But it becomes effective in my life when I take that by faith and trust in Him as my personal Savior. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks about this. Starting at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and hath made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, 
selves, it is a gift of God. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see that. For by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Grace is a gift that God is extending to us. But what what benefit does a gift have if it's not received? You understand that. The gift only benefits you. The gift is only worthwhile. The gift only blesses you if you receive it. Think about a birthday gift. Think about a Christmas gift. You could say, thank you for the gift and never do anything with it. What blessing does that offer you? What good is it in your life? Grace is the gift of God, but it's truly effective when it's received and opened and lived out. Turn back to Titus again and notice in chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. As we think about God's grace is a saving grace. Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you see that? Verse 7, we are justified by His grace. We are justified. It's a, a legal term meaning that we are declared righteous in the sight of God. It means that our record is clear. Our slate is clean. In God's eyes, our sin has been erased. We can stand before God the Father with a clean slate, with a pure heart. Why? Because of the blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf. And when God the Father sees the blood of Christ applied to our lives, He sees us as pure and clean and justified. And I know that I've heard before, justified could mean just as if I'd never sinned. And I understand the drift. I understand where they're going with that. But dear people, I don't believe that says it enough. Because the fact is, I have sinned a lot. I have sinned grievously. And that is exactly what makes the grace of God so amazing. That's what makes my justification so astounding. Like, I don't deserve this. None of us do. And yet God has extended grace to us.
being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's note yet that God's grace is a sanctifying grace. It's a seeking grace, it's a saving grace, and it's a sanctifying grace. Now, sanctification is the ongoing, continual process of transforming our lives more and more into the image of Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? We are being transformed. We are conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. And it's an ongoing process. Amen? (laughs) It is for me. It is for me. But look here at verse 14 of chapter 2. We read that he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, when it says a peculiar people, that doesn't mean that, that it's a people that's strange or weird or out of touch with reality. No, not that kind of peculiar. But it means that we are a purchased people. He has bought us. We have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We are a bought people. In other words, we are not our own. But Jesus Christ has a claim on our lives. He has purchased us. We are now His people. Should that not change the way we live? Who owns you? Who owns you? The scripture here says in verse 12 that the grace of God teaches us. It says the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men teaching us. It teaches us. Well, what does it teach us? Well, if we read on there in verses 12 and 13, we see what it teaches us. It teaches us that we must deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. It teaches us that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It teaches us Verse 13, that we need to have a new perspective. We need to have a perspective of eternal matters. We need to be looking and anticipating the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And so, it says that this grace of God teaches us to live a holy life. We are no longer focused primarily on the stuff of this world, but our primary focus, because of this transformation that is done through the blood of Jesus Christ and our accepting that, this transformation is not just something that is within us. It's not just something uh, that changes our, our brain or our head, but, but it transforms the way we live our life. Now, I want you to quickly note the connection that we find in the first half of this chapter. And we won't read the whole thing, but there's a word that comes out over and over, and it is the word sober. Now, there are different Greek words 
behind some of these English words sober, but they are connected. They are connected in that they have to do with seriousness, a sound mind, thinking about serious matters, not playing around, not fooling around. But in in the first half of this passage, Paul is writing to young Titus, and he lists four groups of people. He lists the older men, he lists the older women, the younger women, and the younger men. And to each of those groups, we have this thing of sober. Now actually, okay, so he tells the older men to be sober. Just just note this quickly. He tells the older men, verse 2, to be sober. Where do we read that? Yes, aged men be sober. Verse 4, he says that the older women should teach the younger women to be sober. Okay, now, he doesn't actually say that the older women in their group, they should be sober. But, they are supposed to teach the younger women to be sober. How could they teach the younger women to be sober if they're not sober themselves? So it implies a soberness in the older women as well. So the older men sober, older women sober, teach the younger women to be sober. And verse 6, when we think about the young men, exhort them to be sober-minded. All right? And then verse 10 says, the last part of verse 10, and I truly believe that this is implying, it's speaking of all these four groups of people that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Now that word adorn literally means to put in proper order. That these people, old men, old ladies, young men, young ladies, they should live their lives so that in a way that puts the gospel in proper order. And I just, I wonder, and I ask you, are you living your life in a way that that the gospel makes sense? Okay? Because you are the only Bible that many people will ever read. You understand that? So when people look at you, do they see the message? Do they see Jesus Christ? Do they see the gospel? Because you need to live your life in a way that puts the gospel in order, as it were. There should be consistency there between the way you live your life and the message of the gospel. The two should go hand in hand. Your life should make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive. It should not turn people away, but it should make them hungry for more. Like, I see these people. I'm blessed. How can I have that in my life? And they go to the Bible and they say, Ah, that's what they're doing. It should make sense to them. That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior and all things. Now, what was the common denominator in, in these groups? Soberness. So then we move into, For the grace of God teaches us that we should deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, And that we should live soberly. There it is. There's a connection there between the way these people live their lives and what is teaching them that? The grace of God. 
Now, <laughs> I just find this fascinating. You know, when a person is truly captured by the grace of God, it will so break them that they will never be the same. I believe that. When a person, I say, is so captured, completely captured by the grace of God, it will so break them that it will change everything about them. You know, sometimes conservative Mennonite church leaders get a little squirrely or get a little nervous when they start hearing the, the teaching and preaching of, of God's free grace. They say, oh, just wait now. Now, okay, I say granted it's, granted it's biblical. And don't confuse when I say God's free grace. Don't confuse that with the theology out there, the free grace theology that is so prevalent in what they teach says that there is no connection between your position in Christ and your practice. No, no, no. Say, I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying that sometimes when, when we hear the preaching and teaching of God's free grace, we get a little nervous because we're not sure what it's going to allow. And maybe people will start doing things they shouldn't do and so on and so forth. And dear people, I believe that when we have truly experienced, when we have truly grasped that all-inspiring, that freedom-giving, that peace-filling, abundant grace of God, it will so compel us to give ourselves wholeheartedly to Christ and the church. In, in fact, what more could a godly church leader ask for? Is that not the proper response to the amazing grace that God has offered us. You see, God's abundant grace is not a license for liberalism, but it is a highway to holiness. Remember that. It is not a license for liberalism. It is a highway to holiness. And, and if, if you are seeing something other than that, if you are seeing some people that say, we believe in free grace, but it's leading them to cast off biblical doctrine then there's something phony about their grace. Something isn't right there. God's free grace, God's amazing grace that He has so abundantly extended should cause us to surrender our lives to Him, to grow closer to Him. You see, the grace that gives us liberty, Romans chapter 6, the grace that frees us from the demands of the law, the grace that frees us from living by the letter of the law is the same grace that calls us to live a holy life by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the same grace. And so, I say, well, how does God's grace teach us? We see here in our text what it teaches us, but how? How does God, God's grace teaches us? Well, that could be another message, perhaps. But just in short, it teaches us in this way. You know, to grasp the grace of God is to gain a life-changing perspective where we see the magnificent glory 
and holiness and the immense love of God. And then in stark contrast to that, we see ourselves. We see that we are utterly unworthy, that we are wretched, that we are sinful, that there is no good in us, there is nothing that merits the love of God. And as a result, we then stand in awe and worship and we consecrate our lives to Him. I say that is to truly grasp the grace of God. That is how the grace of God teaches us. My mind goes to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And let me just reference that yet. We have this story of Isaiah. And it starts by saying, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on His throne, high and lifted up, and His train or the train of His robe filled the temple. And then Isaiah has this amazing vision of who God is and the majesty and the glory and the holiness of God that just filled that temple. And it so, it so humbled him that he said, his response was, woe is me in comparison to what I have seen. He says, woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Why? What made the difference? Because mine eyes have seen the King. Mm -hmm. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. And Isaiah was never the same. And then we have an angel coming and putting this hot coal upon his lips, purging him. And he responds by saying, Lord, what will you have me to do, basically? Here am I, send me. You notice at that point, he then heard the voice of God. Now was that the first time that the voice of God had said, who will go for us? No, not at all. That question has been ringing throughout the ages. Who will go for us? Who will fight for us? Are you willing to serve me? Are you willing to live a consecrated life? But it was only after Isaiah had that vision, it was only after he saw the grace of God, it was only after he saw the majestic wonder and glory and holiness of God, after he had seen the king, that his ears were opened. That it became personal to him. No longer was it just some question out there, but he heard it ringing in his own conscience. Who will go for us? And the only proper response is, here am I, send me. I'm yours, Lord. I say that is the only proper response to the work of God's grace. In conclusion, just note here, back in our text, Titus chapter 2, verse 13. 
looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, God's amazing grace compels us to anxiously await his imminent return and to live our lives in light of eternity. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May God bless each one of you. I enjoy these times of digging into God's word together. May we grow together in the likeness of Jesus Christ. May he he be glorified in our individual lives and through us as a congregation. God bless you. We'll have a song.